Thank you very much for coming and greetings to everyone from far and wide from the west coast of America all the way to the east coast of Australia. Uh, this is the first in a series of online talks organized by the Ibn Arabi Society and I have the pleasure and honor of kicking off. So uh, I hope you'll bear with me if there are any problems with transmission. So uh, the title of my talk has been um, something I've been working with for some time. And it's, this series is designed to be the first of uh, a whole series of talks in memory of two of our distinguished honorary fellows who passed away recently. Michel Chodkiewicz, uh, whose 40th day anniversary is coming up tomorrow, and Keith Critchlow, both of whom have been instrumental in uh, helping the society establish itself and uh, have dedicated their life and work to the ideas of Ibn Arabi in many different ways. So this talk is also being given more or less on the anniversary of Ibn Arabi's birth on the 17th of Ramadan in Murcia. So it's uh, a happy coincidence of many, many items. It's arisen out of a particular collaboration that I've been doing with Pablo Benito, who is going to be giving the second talk in the series. And we're really working together on a remarkable salawat blessing prayer on the Prophet, which is attributed to Ibn Arabi, during the course of which we've come to some new understandings which we wanted to share. So uh, we're really presenting two talks on the same subject, for, but from different angles. Mine is the introductory one. He gets the, he gets the, the full works uh, next, in the next two weeks. And eventually we hope we'll present a book on the prayer with all the analysis that we're doing at the moment. Our readings have been based on uh, the writings of Abdullah Bosnavi, who is known as the commentator on the Fasus, a 17th century Ottoman writer. And through his writing, we've come to understand some of the deep patterns that are in Ibn Arabi's work. And I have to say for myself, this is really the, the uh, part of an ongoing talk on the heart. So I've called it the circle and the compass, but it could equally well be the contemplation of diagrams and the diagrams of contemplation. So today I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, Ibn Arabi's treatment of diagrams. And I want to explore particularly the imagery of the circle and the compass and how it relates to a very remarkable uh, letter in the Arabic alphabet, which we'll come to later. So first of all, I wanted to start with divine word, Quran, which for most people would be something which is sounded and also in book form. It describes itself as a bringing down by the Lord of all beings in an Arabic tongue most clear. And this will be a familiar picture of what one might imagine of Quran. However, for, for Ibn Arabi, the Quran is not simply a book, a written book. It's not simply a recitation sound. 
it is also uh, something whose meaning descends, he says, first of all to the heart and then to the other faculties. So he describes himself a well-known uh, event, the first one he describes in his, in his life, which I will read. One day I became seriously ill and plunged into such a deep coma that I was believed to be dead. In that state, I saw horrible looking people who were trying to harm me. Then I became aware of someone kindly, powerful, exhaling a delightful fragrance who defended me against them and succeeded in defeating them. Who are you? I asked. The being replied to me, I am the Sura Yasin, I am your protector. At this point, I regained consciousness and found my father, God bless him, standing at my bedside in tears. He had just finished reciting the Yasin, which of course is recited over the dead. So here we have a, a remarkable event, but the picture that I wanted to portray is to do with seeing the Quran as a being, as a human being, which is a most important aspect of this. And uh, we can compare it, let us say, to the appearance of Jesus as the word of God manifesting and in human form. So there is a parallel between the Quran on one side and Jesus on the other. This has been well remarked by many people. And also between Muhammad as the recipient of the Quran and Mary as the recipient of Jesus. So what I want to go into today is how does meaning descend into what we might call diagrammatic molds using Ibn Arabi's terminology. So here are two examples of pictures from the Futuhat in Ibn Arabi's own handwriting. On the right hand side you can see the wonderfully geometric shape of the cube inside the circles. And then the other one, one circle inside another circle, inside another circle, and so on. I'm not going to comment on the particular uh, diagrams that would take us into something I don't want to get into. And here we have yet another picture in the same chapter of Futuhat, where he's very explicit. And here we have uh, semicircles on the right-hand side, a very interesting diagram, with, which is to do with higher and lower. So there is above and below. And then on the left-hand side, something that may be familiar to many of you, because it's actually the, it was used as the ground plan for the Taj Mahal in India, and is a picture, a representation of the divine beloved appearing on the day of resurrection and where all the different groupings and people will be. We have other, other depictions with circles, very famous one, uh, the English translation on the left you can see, we have in the center presence, Khadra, unspecified as to, as to anything about it, it's just presence. And then it divides into four, and that four divides again, and there are all sorts of elements. Again, I'm not going into the details of these diagrams, just to say these are important to Ibn Arabi as a representation of an experience, and that's the important part. So when we come to look at a familiar image to everybody, uh, Ibn Arabi arrived at the Kaaba and four events take place which are crucial in his life. 
As you know, he had an encounter with the girl who was the inspiration for Tarjuman al-Ashwak, the eruption of the feminine in his life, from which a whole new development of poetry and so on took place. We also have the encounter with the youth who was steadfast in devotion, neither speaker nor silent, neither alive nor dead. So this is a familiar territory through which all the writing of the Futuhat started. There is a dream vision of the prophet, which he mentions right at the beginning of the Futuhat, where he's invested as the seal of sainthood. And then he has a dream vision of the two bricks, one gold, one silver, completing the walls of the Kaaba itself. So we have a, a very, very crucial image to get to grips with. So on the one side, we can say the Kaaba is the very center, it represents the center. And I've talked about this in a previous talk, it represents the heart. It is a cube within circling pilgrims who pass around its four sides. Notice that the top is open to heaven alone, the bottom open to earth alone. So it's the four sides that are being circled. But Ibn Arabi also alludes to this as a point, not as a cube, as a point, because he says actually the whole of the Kaaba is in the black stone and the black stone is the place of the right hand of God meeting uh, the creation. So when people kiss the black stone, what they're actually doing is acknowledging this point, which is at the center of everything. So we have a kind of complex imagery to do with circles, to do with a cube and to do with a point. So now let me just take you through um, a writing Insha'a Dawa'ir, a book of diagrams, none of which I'm going to show today. It's really from the Futuhat onwards that his explanation of diagrams or his diagrammatic uh, exposition, because he exposes it in words just as much as in drawings, that this came about. So he talks, it's really one of the only places where he explains why he did it. So let's read together. When God glorified and exalted is he, brought me to recognize the realities of things as they are in their essential natures, in their that, and enlightened me by unveiling as regards the realities of their relationships and attributions. I wanted to express them in a visible diagrammatic mold or receptacle, or a qalib, in order to bring closer the spiritual apprehension of the companion and friend Abdullah Badr al-Habashi, and in order to clarify these realities for anyone whose sight is not sharp enough to perceive them and whose mind radiance cannot navigate in exaltation in their spheres. He will then have a clear vision of what degree he has in existence or the human being has in existence and what eminence has been accorded to him such that all angels humbly prostrate to him. So let's just take certain elements in here from the point of view of, let's say, the geometry of reality, because every word in Ibn Arabi is loaded. So the first thing to notice is the word enlightened, at la'ani, which tal'a has a meaning of rising, 
like the rising of a star or the rising of the of the moon and uh, because of this it has an association also with uh, illumination so when he says by unveiling it's a very specific kashfan which you know well i wanted to express them in a visible diagrammatic mold so here we have the reason as it were the reason for a diagram at all or any kind of depiction like this these diagrams are for a very interesting man he doesn't say my companion and friend he says the companion and friend abdallah okay son of the servant of the the ismail jamia the all comprehensive name badr full moon al-habashi the one who collects everything together so now these terms are curiously almost like a cipher his companion turns out to be a uh, let us say like the moon to his son ibn arabi is the sun badr al-habashi is like the moon so that's one relationship of these diagrams but for anybody who can't quite reach to this level in order to clarify these realities for anyone whose sight is not sharp enough to perceive them and whose mind radiance cannot navigate in their spheres he uses a very interesting word uh, which is to do with swimming and navigating and also exalting and then he says spheres why spheres what what spheres it's not clear from the topic yet so all of this is in order to have a clear vision of what degree the human being has in existence such that all angels humbly prostrate to him now then he says something very interesting about angels i beg your pardon if the purest noble angel prostrates to him so this is the high angels what do you imagine is the case of the incomplete lowest assembly of angels the low angels do you not see what the real who is truthful relates about him when he says and who about him meaning the human being when he says and who has subjected you to you all that is in the heavens above and all that is in the earth all of it from him Hence, he brought the whole universe together under the authority of the most elevated human being. Later in the passage, he says, I've drawn di diagrammatic likenesses, set out image parables, explained what is in the human being in order to bring close comprehension and to bring people to knowledge. From the one who brought the world into being, we ask for support and assistance. So, fine. Now, if we take apart the elements here, we have the the high angels the purest noble angels we also have the low angels and all of this has been subjected to the human being so let's go through some straightforward elements all roads ibn arabi writes in another place require circularity now in the translation normally people would say all roads are circular but actually Ibn Arabi again is very precise. He uses a tenth form, meaning it seeks 
circularity, it demands circularity, it needs, it requires circularity, and there's no such thing as a straight road. And incidentally, the word he uses, tariq, is not to be confused with sirat al-mustaqim, the straight path. So in the translation, I've been a bit careful. So we say, well, how is this possible? In the natural world, of course, it's obvious. There are no straight lines in the, in the, in the ordinary sense, but we make straight lines. So how are we to understand what he says that all roads require circularity? Surely you can go from point A to point B. Well, that depends. If you are representing a straight line in two dimensions, you have to bear in mind in the third dimension, it is no longer a straight line, it is curved. Well, we're all familiar with this from Einstein, so I'm not going to labor the point. Let's go through some uh, basics then of from the Futuhat. The universe is ball-shaped or globe-shaped. So since the universe is ball-shaped, in his ending, the human being longs for his beginning. Do you not see that when you begin to make a circle, from the moment you start, you continue to go round until you come back to the place where you began? Only then does it become a circle. So we are therefore unaware of the circularity of our being because we haven't got to the end point from which we'll begin again, he says. Now, important point if the creative order were not like that, then we, coming out from him in a straight line, would be unable to return to him. And his words, and to him you shall return, would not be true. And he is the truthful one. So the whole idea of circularity is bound up, therefore, with the idea of return. So let's take a little look at a circle itself, a little bit more from Futuhat. The divine creative order is circular. And when he uses this word creative order, he's using Amr, which is very difficult to translate because it can mean the order or just the affair. It could be the divine affair is circular. The whole divine matter is circular. But I think he's also hinting that the order itself is circular. This is why God's order concerning things never ends. For the circle has no first or last in it except through the determination of notching so as soon as you bisect a circle anywhere, then you can say there is a beginning and an end. Otherwise, nothing. It's a simple circle. Because of this, the universe emerged as circular in accordance with the form of the order as it is in itself until it came into shapes. The first shape to receive the universal body is that of a circle. And this is the orbiting sphere. Now, interestingly, he uses both terms a circle, which you'd say is two-dimensional, and a sphere, three-dimensional. And then in a wonderful passage, really wonderful passage that came uh, just after he's talked about meeting the youth. When a circle is being drawn, as the end of the circle is being reached, the adjustable leg of the compass returns to its beginning point. Incidentally, this is the only place that I found in Ibn Arabi's writing ever where he uses the word compass. Thus, the last part of the creative order is tied indissolubly to its first. 
its endless everlastingness inclines and curves into its beginningless eternity. There is only continuous being and freshly established witnessing. So he's taking the image of the, of the circle and saying this adjustable leg of the compass is returning. And so there's an, you cannot separate the last part of the order from its first. Its everlastingness, which we can say is the, like the um, semicircle at the bottom, if you like, is everlasting. It inclines and curves into its beginningless eternity. Only continuous being, perpetual being, and freshly established witnessing. Well, so far so good, but we haven't got to the representations. How do we represent it? So in the Futuhat, Ibn Arabi has a very interesting drawing. This is the, the first one, is in his own hand. Second one is in the printed Futuhat. Third one is an English translation. So if we look at these, we notice, first thing we notice is that the last two are pretty much similar. The first one is rather a bit different. We have the word hak, real, the real, inside a circle with a dot. And then we have a circle around it with the word mumkin, meaning the possible. And then around that, in a rather diagrammatic form, the word al-muhal, which means the impossible or non-existence. So I presented this last year in Sarajevo and I was thinking about it. And I, did, I, asked, I asked myself, why did Ibn Arabi write it like this? And I had no, at the time I had no answer. So let's see if we can find an answer. But now we need to get into the compass. So here we have a beautiful compass. Um, you can see that uh, it is basically uh, two legs put together with a, a little circular joiner at the top right and um, the pen part of it is not the standing leg. The pen part is on the adjustable leg. Very important principle. So in itself a compass represents the, the alif, this letter of just self-standing letter, which is associated with the name Ahad, unique, the, the one who is unique, there's nothing like him. As soon as we divide the compass into two, then we can draw a circle. Until we do this, there's, there's, the separation is necessary in order to draw the circle. So this second leg where the pencil is, uh, is the equivalent of the letter ba. And this is what Ibn Arabi has to say about the ba. The ba is really an alif. Well, quite obviously, when you look at the compass, single in respect of its essence, and it's a ba in respect of it manifesting in the second degree of being. So it's only when you separate the compass into uh, its two constituent bits that you can see it's got two-ness, it's not just one. And then he says, all things manifest through the bar. Well, that's obvious because uh, all the drawing takes place through the pencil. Why do all things manifest through the bar? Because he is one 
and only one can emerge from him. This is a well-known principle in Greek thought too. Now, having got so far, I want to go on to a uh, slightly different element to do with a letter, which will bring together some of the things we've been discussing so far. There is one letter which expresses circularity more perfectly, more directly than any other, and it's known as the noon. So its shape is more or less like this, if you print it. Uh, in fact, when Ibn Arabi represents it, this is from his diagram, he does it like this, more or less kind of a semicircle, and the dot is most of the time to the side. He has a reason for doing this, I don't want to go into it. Um, one of the uh, images here is like an inkwell into which the pen uh, drops, draws the ink and writes. It's associated with the pen in uh, the Surat al-Qalam, the Surah of the pen, which begins, noon, by the pen and what they write, through your Lord's blessing, you are not possessed. So, according to Ibn Arabi, the noon is the visible part of a whole circle. It is just half the circle. And there is another spiritual noon, which is hidden from us. It's the, the upper part of the circle. The dot, uh, which is, should be in the middle in this representation, is representing, he says, a hidden aleph. A hidden aleph. So when you think about that normally, you would, say, you would extend the aleph vertically, as it were, from, the, from this basin of the noon. That's not what he means. He means precisely that the standing leg of the compass, which is drawing the circle, is standing in that middle dot. And the only thing visible is the dot of it because of the dimensionality. So in other words, this hidden aleph is in a different dimension to the rest of it. As also, by the way, is the ba, but that's another story. So now let's go into the little bit of uh, secrets of the noon a little bit. The noon itself is represented with, with, by three letters. It has a noon, a wow in the middle, and a noon. So it's one of these very special letters which beginning letter and the end letter of the name of the letter is the same. There are three of them in Arabic, and Ibn Arabi wrote a whole treatise on it. Its number is 50 or more usually five. It is related to, uh, and this is something Pablo Benito will go into in two weeks' time, more than I have time to hear, go into here. It's related to the saying, kun, be, so it becomes, fayakun. You'll notice that there is a nun at the end of the word kun, and there is a nun at the end of the word fayakun. So the first nun of the kun is like the upper part of the circle, hidden from view. The second noon is like the visible semicircle that we can see in the represented in the letter. So there is a, a kaf and a noon to make kun. And then there are a fa, a ya, a kaf, a wow, and a noon, five letters to make the second part. 
So two and five. How strange. The five is the number of the noon. The two is the number of kaf. So now we have a very, there's some very complex uh, and beautiful symmetry about this simple phrase, which let me just say, when Pablo and I were translating uh, this Salawat prayer, what came to us was that in fact the Quran says, when we will a thing to be, when we desire a thing to be, our word to it or our speech to it is kun fayakun. It's the whole lot. We normally say, well, the order is be, and then things become. But there's another way of understanding this altogether, which is that the whole phrase is a single unit of speech. So going on more about the noon. Uh, this is the order of Arabic letters in uh, the, the order of articulation. So when you, were, if you were speaking, begins with Alif or Hamza and ends up with Wow. So we have Alif, we have Noon. Noon is right in the middle of this. It's the 14th letter and the Wow at the end of the 28. If we were to do this in ordinary uh, alphabetical abjad order, we would also find that the noon is right in the middle. So there is something about this letter which is entirely central in the Arabic language and thought. So let's have a look at the constituent elements of noon. We have noon and wow and noon, as I said. The wow itself is made up of wow, alif, wow, w, a, w. Now, if we represent uh, the let's say a table of the of the of the noon we come up with something very odd so we have i think my cursor if i can find it is noon wow noon this is noon then we have noon wow noon this is noon and then we have noon wow noon this is noon then we have noon wow noon this is noon we have a circling of the noon round and round the central point, which is the Aleph. So in English letters, NWN, 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 and goes on and on and on. Uh, for those of you who like numbers, incidentally, 565, 565, 565, one in the middle. And the total of that is 45, which happens to be the number of the Adamic sciences. So with all this in mind, we have, a, we have some complex, uh, let's say, picturing going on with the noon. So I want to take you through, uh, while there's still time, the poem on the noon in the Futuchat and explain certain things about it. So in the top right here, this is Ibn Arabi's own handwriting of this, of this wonderful three-line uh, poem. And you can see the final letter ha here, right at the end of it, is isolated on its own and looking rather, rather pretty. Over here on the left hand side is a text from a manuscript, a commentary on the Salawat prayer that uh, Pablo and I were doing. And we have a very curious noon here. We have an upside down noon. 
which turns out to be extremely important to understand because it's a spiritual moon. It's on the word ayan or iyan. So let's have a look at the poem itself. Sorry. The dot of the self-nature of the noon of existence in her unseen reality as an I indicates the object of her adoration. Her own being is from his generosity and his right hand, and all the created beings of her higher side are from her generosity. So observe with your own eye the manifest half of the reality of her being, out of her generosity, guiding you to her non-manifest half. So let's just take it um, one line at a time. The dot of the self-nature, the self-nature here is that, which actually has a dot on it. You can probably see in the, in the text up here. You can see around there, there's the dot. So, the dot of the noon of existence. So this is the visible noon. But in her unseen reality as an I, or as an Ein, I'm going to come back to that word in a minute, indicates the object of her adoration. So the dot indicates the object of her adoration. The object of her adoration, of course, is the invisible Aleph, which is the compass, her own being, her own being as a, as a complete circle, is from his generosity and his right hand. His right hand, we discovered with the Kaaba, is the dot at the center of the circle. And all the created beings of her higher side, so this is the upper half of the, of the circle of the noon, the invisible half, are from her generosity. This is the noon, the letter noon is feminine. So observe with your own eye, ein, ambiguous word, the manifest half of the reality of her being. Out of her generosity, guiding you to her non-manifest half. So the manifest half of the noon is generously guiding us to her non-manifest half. There's many things to say about this poem. It's a wonderful, wonderful poem. But let's take, because I wish to finish in a minute, final thing. I mentioned the word Ein. The one Ein is well known to all of you. How to translate this? Essence? Entity? I? How are we to translate such a word? It has all these meanings and probably more. This is a picture of the human eye. And the first thing to notice is the similarity to the drawing I showed you earlier of Ibn Arabi's representation of being. The black hole in the middle of the eye, the pupil, is of course exactly the same uh, as the circle of the huck in Ibn Arabi's drawing. And you'll notice that with the eye, the most amazing thing is, apart from the fact that we all have eyes, we, we all have a central pupil, which is a hole, and we all have individually different irises. 
this is one particular one. We could have many different ones. So if we start reading Ibn Arabi with, with some of these ideas in play, let me go back to this one. He says, by the way, about this drawing in the bottom left, that all that is, is the haq. And everything, the mumkin side, the possible side, is either, is always ambiguous, has an ambiguous relationship to being itself. All being is haq. The possible participates in that, but it also participates in, let's say, the the non-existent side, the impossible side. So it is in this Barzakh position. So this is, this is a multi-dimensional term, Ein. It's not a, a, an intellectual concept like entity. It really is some pointing at something which is a visionary experience. And as you probably know, in Arabic, the word for pupil, insan al-Ein, is the human being of the um, whatever we call of the eye the human being of the eye is the pupil of the eye and Ibn Arabi says in Fusus this is the it is through the human being through the insan al-ayn that God sees the world so we can say well okay the this pupil is empty it's a whole but it's not a blind hole. It's the fullness of vision itself. So the fullness of vision, as he says, is with two eyes. So let me leave you with two, two quotations from the early part of the Futuchat. Observe the beginning of being, wujud, and be through him aware. You will see generosity, jud, both ancient and new. Uh, notice, incidentally, wujud is identical to jud, except it has an added letter. Otherwise, it's exactly the same in script. So the beginning of wujud is his generosity. You will see generosity, both ancient and new. Interesting. Why? Because the upper part of the circle is the ancient, is the eternal. The lower part of the circle is the new, is the freshly established. And then a well-known quotation from Tajuman, when my beloved appears, with what eye do I see him? With his eye, not mine, for none sees him but himself. So there is a good place to finish the talk. Thank you very much for all your participations and quietness of listening. <laughs>